thing. Uh, I'm going to confess something to you guys this morning that you might find entertaining. The elders already know what I'm going to tell, tell you all. That I, we got here early and we're hustling to get to church like everybody else. And I don't know if this occurred before I put my pants on, while I put my pants on, when I got into the car, when I got out of the car, when I sat down to pray with the elders, but my pants split right in half this morning. So if, you know, there's times where God needs to humble you. Apparently, somebody was going to say something really nice to me today, and it maybe was going to puff me up, and God said, no, 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 I'm going to bring you right back down, because this is about me, not you. By the way, that's happened more than one time in my life. No comments from you all as to why that might be the case. But at any rate, it's all fixed. We took care of it, and it's good. God is good. Yeah, somebody's clapping, and I appreciate that. <laughs> I'm clapping too. Fortunately, we got a nice big pulpit here, so we'll be fine. Okay, but back to the business at hand. Uh, how blessed are you with that music this morning? Uh, it's such a great reminder of what we've been talking about. Uh, I just love the choices of, of music that Isaiah had chosen this morning. He emailed me ahead of time to tell me what that would be. And um, man, I just, the theology, the doctrine in those old hymns, and this is not to criticize anything new. There's some incredible new music, too. But, boy, it just touches you because it's filled with Scripture. If you were here in the first hour, we, we kind of re- recounted and, and talked about, discussed the incredible necessity for us to cling to Scripture, to know Scripture that the Puritans considered so important, as we should as well. You're going to see a few Puritans quoted this morning. But man, I just love singing that sort of scripture. This morning we're going to look at scripture, and um, if you'd turn with me to Galatians chapter 3, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Galatians chapter 3, 19 through 25, and we are going to start here today. Before we get into the word, if you'd bow in prayer with me, let us start this correctly. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. We glorify your name. You are an incredible, powerful, mighty, and perfect God. You are the only God. And we were made to praise you, to glorify you. We were created for that purpose. And if we refuse, the rocks will cry out. And we don't want any rocks to cry out this morning. This time in this place, right here in Plainfield, Indiana, is a time for you. And it's a time for us to know more about you, to dig into your word deeper, to understand it more so that it will affect us as Brock has already prayed, that we will be changed, that we will be different men and women because of what you're teaching us today in your word. And throughout the week as we continue to do so, uh, challenge this morning in the first hour that how dedicated we are to studying your word. There's so many heroes of the faith that have gone on before that dedicated so much of their day to studying you, knowing you, and to applying your word. I pray that we be the same sort of uh, followers, sanctified, progressive, sanctified believers that continue to grow in you. Be with us now as we study these passages that are so important to understanding sin, law, redemption, your salvation, and pointing us to you. I pray that we are pointed to your son this morning, always continually reminded of the sacrifice, the necessity, the beauty of your salvation. We love you, Lord. Be with us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So you're in Galatians 3 with me, and you can see the title, Why the Law? Why do we need the law? So many people would add that today, and why do we need the Old Testament? Some would even say, why do we need the Bible at all? It's so old. Who needs it? Well, here today we're going to see the the necessity of the law, the Word, the Scripture as we see it. A quick reminder of where we've been and where we're going. Remember, chapters 1 and 2, very autobiographical for Paul. Chapter 3, an explanation of the doctrine that we're going through right now and finishing up this week. Next week we'll be starting, or into next week rather, two weeks from now we will Uh, head into chapter 4, this illustration of doctrine, and then 5 and 6, the application of doctrine. Where we were last week, if you were here with me, and if you weren't, I'll quickly review this. Paul makes a fourfold argument of justification by faith. And you'll notice that we went through these different arguments that Paul was making, but the overriding feature that we saw was God's goodness, his promise-keeping character. 
the sort of God that he is, who he always will be, and we'll look at it, we'll review that very quickly today. Here's where we're going. Today in Galatians 3, 19 through 25, as we look at this, we're going to see a couple things about the law. We're going to see in verse 19, the law is, the purpose of it is to identify sin. And um, we'll unpack that and how important that is even for the believer. Verse 20, the law being inferior to faith. As we've seen already, Paul is going to triple down on this idea today, this morning. Verses 21 and 22, a very peculiar thing that Paul says, that the law, and let's just call it Scripture, God's Word, is a prison. Boy, that seems negative, doesn't it? But we'll understand that a little bit more. And then finally, this concept of the law being our guardian and what that might mean. So before we get into all of that, let's quickly review from last week, and we're going to pick up where we left off. You may remember we were in Colossians 1 last week, and I'd like to kind of go back to that because it gives us a good jumping point. Paul does a nice job for us of transitioning from one thought to the next by building on what he had already said and then kind of illuminating that in the next few verses and then closing it out. Of course, that is God's divine purpose for his word, that it flows together, goes together. So I think we, it, it's wise for us to see where we were and where we're going. So here's what Paul says to the church in Colossae, verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We focused on that last week, studying his word as we talked about in hour one today, knowing it, understanding it, the authority of it, and then growing in it. And why is that? Verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's what we talked about last week. Our reaction to this incredible promise-keeping God who accomplished salvation for us is to walk now in a worthy, manner worthy of the Lord. Paul would put that in Acts chapter 26 as performing deeds in line or in keeping with your repentance. That's what we should do. But as we transition forward, fully pleasing to him. We're going to see that some of what we're looking at today, in order to please him, we need to know what doesn't please him. So important for us as we think of how we, we grow in Christ. Fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. So we talked about that last week as well, this incredible gift that was handed to you and I by grace when you put your faith in Christ, inheritance into the kingdom that you did not deserve, a salvation that was unearned, and what type of reaction our lives should have as believers to that. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, as we just sang, the forgiveness of sins. And then the quote we had from MacArthur last week, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but look at the second half where you see those dots. I put the dots in here. I would like to, this is something we heard last week, but this gives us a good transition into this week. Look at what MacArthur says here about that particular passage. We have laid hold, and it says this in the middle, we have laid hold of the full benefits of the promises of God to Abraham when he have, have laid hold of Christ, when we have laid hold of Christ. We have an anchor of the soul. I talked about that last week, when we are connected to Christ. We take hold of him as our hope. All the promises to Abraham that embrace the promises to David that embrace the new covenant are all in Christ. And when they lay hold of Christ, we lay hold of those promises. There's nothing there about the Mosaic law. You say, well, that seems, what, what, is, is, he, is he discouraging us to look at the law? Is he telling us that the Old Testament doesn't matter anymore? That all of what was taught, Levitically speaking, to the Jews is thrown out? Well, that's not what we're going to see from Scripture, and that's not what MacArthur believes. So what is the purpose of the law? So that takes us to our text today. In Galatians chapter 3, here's what we see. So coming off of all of this, Paul's argument about being saved by faith, grace, faith, Christ, what we've been hammering for weeks, he says this. Look at verse 19. Well, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to, to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermedi intermediary. 
Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So when we look at this passage, there's a lot here, as you can see. And you're already nervous because I have spent five minutes preparing us for this. But trust me, we're going to get through this. It is important for us to understand this piece of Scripture. What is the purpose of the law? And as we go through this, let's go back to verse 19. Why then the law? Now notice I'm just going to look at the first half of verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Okay, so we see this out of Paul in the first half of 19. It tells us this, and if you look at what I've put up here, this argument raises that question, why the law? Paul is telling us the law is a mirror. The law is for you to look at because it reflects who you are. And let me put it better like this. It reflects who you should be and you fall short of. So let me repeat that. The law, as you look at it, reflects you and what you fail to be in, it, it, without Christ. What you fail to achieve that is God's standard. And that's a little scary to think about. When we look at God's standard of perfection and righteousness, each one of us falls short. The beauty of the Old Testament, the beauty of the New Testament and Old Testament combined, is that God doesn't hide his will from us. God doesn't hide his law from us. He doesn't hide his standards from us because he's a good God who cares about us. So when we look at this mirror, it revealed to us that we're sinners, clearly, that we can't live up to the standard, clearly, but it really also brings us to our knees understanding we're not going to live forever either. And that's a scary thought. And what it should do for those of us who have a clear understanding of who we are is that it gives us the understanding that we're not righteous. And why does that matter? Well, it matters because of what Jesus has said to us through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. He says this, and we, we sometimes breeze through this because we really enjoy verse 11, which we'll talk about in a second, but sometimes we breeze through that and maybe we need to reconsider verses 9 and 10. Here's what Paul says to the church in Corinth. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So the law is showing us that we're unrighteous. You realize that that puts you in a desperate situation. Won't inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. We know what the consequences are for looking in the mirror and seeing our sin. We know the consequences are grave. Our one, we understand not having a spiritual mindset being, being driven by the Spirit, the consequences are life and death. It's a big deal. Now, you know the good news of verse 11, as were some of you, but you're now washed. But I think the, so often in our, our generation of Christians today, we jump right to verse 11 not considering our sin. And maybe haven't been drawn to our knees. Haven't maybe been brought to the end of ourselves as we think about this. What Paul says is, the law was added because of our transgression. Because of our sin. Here's the way to look at that from the Greek. The law gave sin the character of transgression. It's kind of confusing to think of that. But this is what that means. Personal guilt. It takes it to your personal level. When we look at the law... You might say, well, I'm pretty good at that one, but ooh, I'm really bad at that one. And the person next to you, and I don't just mean the Ten Commandments, I mean the, the extent of the moral law of God and his continued word from Old to New Testament. You might say, well, I'm not as big of a slander as him, but ooh, boy, I really have some immoral thoughts. Ooh, I lose my cool, but you know, I, I'm also hospitable. See, there's something in there for everybody, isn't there? Doesn't it really make it personal to you? When you start looking at the mirror of God's Word, there is no escape, is there? Not a single bit of escape. 
personal guilt comes here. Now, we know the precious blood of Christ as we've sung, and as I mentioned, verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6 tells us we were washed, but until you understand that you have personal guilt, you really don't think you need a Savior, do you? And I think we're living in a world where there are a lot of people who don't believe they need a, a Savior. So when we consider this, and we're going to look at the, the, the uh, kind of the defense of this as we go through Scripture, certainly sin has always been on the table from Adam forward, but God needed to identify this for us, so we took it personal. Here's how Paul puts this as we go forward, as he puts this in Romans chapter 5. This helps us to understand this a little bit better. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, speaking of Adam, and death through sin... We know the result of that sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. We know of our sin nature. Here's what Paul says in verse 13. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. God is a God of justice. He wanted to make sure you understood what was written in your heart, according to Romans 2.15. If you look at that, the work of the law is written in our hearts. So our conscience is burned. He knows, we know rather, that we have fallen short. But God is a God of justice. He makes sure that you know for sure. It was, it was counted to you. So you know for sure where you're falling short. And the reality of this as we go through Romans, Romans 3.20, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We now know and have a, a clear understanding of God's standard of perfection and how we fall short of it. Notice in Romans 5.20, just walking through this, now the law came, and that's further down from Romans 5.12-13 that we had just previously looked at, the law came in to increase the trespass. So you now know more about what you've done wrong. Now this shouldn't surprise you much if you've ever dealt with little kids. Have you ever heard this where you've been in a situation and some teacher or principal or some adult made the grave mistake of giving some rule that the kids would have never, it would have never crossed their mind, like, make sure you don't walk on that grass. They've just planted seed there, and now kids are thinking, well, I'm going to walk on that grass now. That's exactly what I'm going to do. Don't touch that rail. It just got painted, and there's some seven-year-old like, well, I have to touch that rail now. That's human nature, isn't it? That's exactly what we see here in Romans 5.20. It increases the trespass. We now have more guilt. It isn't less. The more we know, and see, this is where God wants us to be. He wants us to see just how vast and great and awesome His grace is and how dependent we are on Him and how unworthy we are. The more we look at His Word, the more we realize that. And I'm preaching to the choir here because many of you have been in the faith a long time. And I'll tell you this, and I know I'm speaking for you, I don't feel somehow more worthy of salvation the longer I go with Christ. I feel less worthy of salvation. Can you feel that? That's, that's what the Word of God does to us. It increases the trespass. It doesn't mean somehow that, well, I'm further away from Him. No, it, it shows me just how glorious He is, how loving He is. That's what that means. When sin increased, grace abounded all the more. We feel that. We know that because it's true. Later on, we're going to look at Psalm 119 and hearts, David's heart for this, and we'll see how that plays out. And I think when we read that Psalm 119 passage here in a few slides, you're going to feel your heart reverberating those words of David because you feel it too. You understand as you grow in Christ, that's how it will be. So what do we see in Romans 7? We're going to come back to Romans 7 again today, later on. But what does Paul say here? It's, it's this. What then shall we say? That law is sin? And you're going to hear this phrase later, and I'll break down may ganotos later. But it says, by no means, of course not, of course we can't. Yet if he had not been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin. I wouldn't have known. Now part of this is to understand grace even more, but also to stop doing it. See, remember how we talked about last week that there is, and this week I reviewed with you, that the reaction to salvation, redemption, the ransom that was paid, is to walk in a manner worthy. The more you see how you fall short, the better you can work on your walk with Christ. Of course, the Holy Spirit's going to convict you, but it's the Word of God that teaches us right from wrong. 
even as adults and even as mature Christians, we're continually learning more and more about what pleases God. So here's what Paul says, continuing on here through verse 7. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. That's a heart issue. That's a heart issue. Paul's talking about his heart, something that maybe nobody else would know, knew, but he knew in his heart. See, the word of God is what revealed that to him. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, producing me all kinds of covetousness. I started unpeeling the onion, Paul is saying, of my heart and realizing how desperate it is. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. See, our understanding of our nature helps us to serve him better. Our understanding of the depths of our sins helps us to become better servants, more humble servants, so that we can be better ambassadors for the king. Last week I told you, you know, I'm going to tell you every week that you got to go out and preach the word, and I told you, I'm going to tell you again, part of what prepares you to be that sort of uh, preacher of the faith, and that's what you are, teacher of the faith, ev- ev- faith, evangelist of the faith, is to work on your holiness. Now that's not to save us. How could I say that after all of these weeks of being saved by grace through faith in Christ? So don't misunderstand me. That's not to save us but to equip us to be a better representative of a kingdom citizen. To make that look the way it should because it should be full of joy, contentment, holiness, different, walking in a different way. And that's what God calls us to. That's what he wants us to do. That's what he wants us to be. We should be different. So as we go forward in 1 Timothy, here's how Paul puts this to Timothy. This is 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10. Now we know that the law is good, The Greek word here is also useful. Some of your translations say that. It's good, it's useful, it's good for if one uses it lawfully, the right way. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Very much like what we heard earlier. Find your poison. Pick your poison here. What's in your heart, what is going on in your life, but see, it's good to understand who you are and what you were. Even if we are redeemed and saved, it's good to remember what you still struggle with. The continual struggle. This morning, Pilgrim's Progress was referenced. Uh, We talked about that a little bit in the first hour. We discussed it. And the idea of maybe potentially reading that every year. And the idea of progressive sanctification came up. Dave made mention of it here, even at this pulpit. The idea that we continue to struggle. It's good to remember what we fall short of here. I love this in the middle. Paul is certainly hearkening back to Christ's words in Luke 5.32. When he says, listen, the law, it's not laid down for the just, but for the lawless, the disobedient, and then listing all these things that we might struggle with. Remember what Christ said to the Pharisees and scribes who said, why are you hanging out with all these sinners? And you remember what Christ said. He said to them, well, I answered, Jesus answered, well, a physician doesn't come to those who are well. The, the, The physician doesn't need to be to those who are well, but to those who are sick. And I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Not to those who think they don't need Christ, those who know they fall short of the law. So we see why the law is good. It's more than good. It's excellent. And let's get to Psalm 119. So I mentioned this earlier. How does David look at this? How excellent is it? Why is it excellent? Why does he love it? What is the reason for for David's heart for this passage? Well, this is what he says. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Hmm. The only way to know those and remind yourself of those is Scripture, right? I have stored up your word in my heart. I study it. I memorize it. That I might not sin against you. His desire is that he not sin against the Lord. This is a man who certainly was a man after his own heart, of God's own heart, who was willing to do all of God's will at this point, but he still understood his need for Scripture and to follow it. Might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Continually do this. I would guess that David was saying this sort of prayer, proclaiming this sort of truth, right up till the day he died. That should be our mantra as well. 
That should be what it is. Now, I told you we're going to hit a few of the Puritans today. This book, Zachary Crofton, is one of the Puritans, 1600 circa. They reproduced his book here recently, and here's a quote from it. Here's what it says about this. Without the law, there is no transgression. So, without the knowledge of the law, there can be no conviction. See, it's easy if ignorance is bliss, right? If you don't know about it, say, well, I didn't know. I didn't realize But the more you study the Word, you can't make that excuse anymore. If you're in it every day, you can't say, well, I just didn't know, Lord. See, the Holy Spirit is is very diligent. And He is going to continue to convict you and transform you and make you into what He wants you to be. And His Word never comes back void, see? So if that's true, we're going to be convicted. We're going to be convicted when we leave this place today if God's Word is penetrating our heart, and it will. We're going to be convicted when we interact with another believer who's quoting Scripture to us or texting it to us, although you will have a hard time texting it to me, but I'll get into the Word, I promise you. Uh, Some of you don't realize I don't have a cell phone, so that, that makes sense to you now. But we get into the Word and it convicts us. We speak with someone who's, who's quoting the Word, it convicts us. That's what it does. We know what it's good for. All right, let's transition here. It says in verse 19 very strange thing, that it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, I'll just go ahead and tell you right off the bat, this is mysterious. And and it's mysterious because we really don't know the details of what he's referencing here. We know what he's talking about. We understand he's talking about the law and it was given. He tells us this in a few other passages, but truth be told, we don't have a lot of detail. Let me show you what we do have. Put in place through angels, this law. Verse 19, Galatians 3.19, at the end. It was put in place through angels by an intermediary. They were involved in this law giving, but were not given the details. Here's what Stephen says in his sermon. By the way, this was right before they killed him. So it got them riled up. I'm certain that it's true. And truth is what usually gets false teachers riled up, but they were pretty riled up. And here's what he says right before they're gritting their teeth and coming after him. As he concludes his sermon, Stephen says this, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and didn't keep it. So we have Stephen referencing this as well, that the law was given by angels, that angels were involved in the law-giving, the, the, the law-giving moment, the law-giving era, that time period in that 40, day, or 40 years where, where this interaction between Moses and God, where the law is delivered. And so we see this again in Hebrews, and it's again very vague, but let me read it to you. So therefore, we must pay close attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, the law given to, by angels through Mo, to Moses, through Moses, we don't know the details, by angels, it proved reliable. The law is good. The Old Testament's reliable. Every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Coming right back to the idea, this is God's standard, and it's true. But it was given by angels. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared first by the Lord, and it was attested to those who heard it. So this is a little vague. Now we have one reference in Deuteronomy. And if you want to go there, you can. I've got it up on the screen, but it's a little small. So feel free to go to Deuteronomy chapter 33. Moses references this a little bit. Now we don't have any detail. If you were to go back to those moments where Moses was interacting with God, or I should say God was interacting with him and giving him the law. We don't see angels mentioned at all. So I have no reference for that. But when Moses is giving his final blessing, look at what he says in Deuteronomy 33. Very interesting. And I don't want to spend a ton of time on this because we just don't know exactly what it is. But he puts it in here, so we need to know. This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. More than likely, this is Joshua who is writing this. He said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones. 
These are angels that were with him, with flaming fire at his right hand. Yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hand. They were with him. They were at hand with him when he did this. So they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you. When Moses commanded us a law as a possession for the assembly of Jacob. Now there's interplay here with the holy ones. Some of these, some people inter- interface this with the people who believed Moses and followed the law, his, his people, others indicating that this could be angels. This is the list, folks. This is what we have for how angels delivered this. Now here's why Paul makes the point, though. Because you're going to think, what's this got to do with anything? Why did Paul put this in here? Here's why. And I want you to keep all of these scriptures in the back of your head. Clearly, angels were involved when the law was given. But when faith was given, when faith, the covenant of faith in Abraham, it was God and God only. Okay, let me, let me repeat that. Angels were involved in the law. It was good and it was necessary as we just saw in all three of those passages. Four, if you include the Deuteronomy passage. It was good, but there were three people involved in that. When faith was given, the covenant of faith that we've looked at, God alone ratified that covenant. That gives us this. Faith is superior to the law. It doesn't throw the law out, but it's superior to the law. As we go back to Galatians 3, here's what verse 20 now continues on. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So I think what Paul is doing here, from my best guess, when we have the vagueness of this angelic interaction with the law, is that you see there's a difference. There's a difference between when, the, when faith was given, when God ratified that, and when the law was given. And here's the comparison. Genesis 15, 7-21. Please turn there as I talk here, because I want you to see this. I thought about skipping that for the sake of time, but I think it's important. What we see here in God's first covenant with Abraham, the first one we see is an unconditional, unilateral, this is me doing it and I will not fail. God promised to fulfill this this covenant. He vowed to fulfill this promise no matter what man does. And here's what we see of this. So in Genesis 15, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but I want you to be there in context. He makes promises to him in chapter 7, and through these promises, Abraham asks a good question. How am I going to know that this is real? And this is what happens. So as we go forward, verse 12, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain, know for certain, that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. We looked at that last week. But I will bring judgment on the nation that, that they serve, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. You're not going to see all this. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun goes down and it was dark, behold, a smoke smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between these pieces. Now you're saying, what pieces? Well, we skipped this part. At the beginning, God told him, if you skip back here, he said, bring me a heifer. This is verse 8. Uh, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a, a young pigeon. And he brought them and he cut them in half, laid each half over against the other. So there's a path through it. So this is how they ratified covenants. We talked about this a little while ago, but this is how they ratified this in the ancient days. Nobody walked through this. Nobody, no man walked through this to ratify the covenant, but that's what we have in verse 17. When the sun goes down, there's this smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passing between these pieces. Every commentary I found said that is God passing through these pieces, saying that, I will make this true. The reason why men ratified covenants this way is they'd say, if we violate this, we're going to be like these pieces. We're going to be cut in half. So we're not going to violate this. Only God could walk through these pieces, pass through these pieces, and say, there's no chance I will violate this covenant with you. This covenant of faith. Remember, Abram is counted righteousness, uh, counted, has righteousness counted to him because of his faith. He says this, 
I promise I will not violate this. And this has got nothing to do with Abraham obeying him. You see nothing in this passage. All God says is this in verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. I give this to you. It is yours. All the promises from chapter 12 through chapter 20 are ratified in this covenant, and only God makes it, and only God guarantees it. Exodus 19, this is conditional. This was based on, in Exodus 19, whether or not the people would keep his promise, or keep, keep his word, rather. Exodus 19.5 says this, starting at verse 4, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Did you notice that there is an if-then statement here? If you do this, then this will happen. We don't see that with the unconditional, unilateral covenant that God made by faith. So you see this is the reason why he is bringing this here. So just to break this down really quick, this slide helps us a little bit. The superiority of the Abrahamic covenant. The covenant of faith is greater to the covenant of the law for these ways. How it was given, directly by God rather than through angels. How long? Forever versus temporary. And conditionally, dependent on God versus dependent on men. And aren't you glad that God passed through those pieces and made and ratified this covenant, which engulfs all of us who are saved by grace through faith? That happened because only God can keep promises, very clearly. One mediator, one God. Now let's bring this to the New Testament for a moment. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. And I would like to focus on the bottom half of this, but I'm going to read it all. Look at what it says. So bringing this around to the modern-day Christian today, what does this have to do with me? Well, here it is. First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Look at this. Who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. You know the heart of the Lord. He wants people to be saved. How badly does he want people to be saved? He took on human flesh, lived a life during a very hard time to be a Jewish man or a woman, lived it perfectly, fulfilled prophecy, willingly died on a Roman cross, facing humiliation and pain and suffering, the separation from the Father, taking the sins of, men, of those who would be saved on his shoulders, and then defeating death three days later. That's how bad he wants to save people. That's how desired he is for the hearts of mankind. And then he says this, for there is one God, there is one mediator, Who's the mediator? Who's the intermediator? Who's the one who passed through those, those, that sacrifice to ratify the covenant between God and men? And that is Christ Jesus. We know his name. We know the power that moved those pieces through, those, the, the, through that covenant and through that path between the sacrifice. We, he gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. The person who ratified this covenant was Jesus himself. And if we look at this for us, we say, okay, well, that's a practical thing for me. Because the, the covenant-keeping God, the one who made faith superior to the law, he's the one that can satisfy the law too. So let's bring this around. How is Scripture a prison? That seems so negative. Galatians three twenty-one through 22, the next verses say this. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. We'll get to that in a second. For if a law had been given that could, could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The mediator that we just spoke of, the one who changed everything, the promise keeper that could go through and, and ratify that covenant, to verify that covenant, to authenticate that covenant, he's the one in whom we need to put our faith in. That's whom we need to believe in. Now back to our, we actually heard from him this morning in hour one. Jeremiah Burroughs was quoted this morning as well 
We heard from him in the, 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 um, the precious jewel of Christian contentment. And here's what he says in another book, Christ, or Christ inviting sinners to come to him for rest. He says this, The law accepts no repentance. Let the sinner be sorrowful and lament with tears of blood. Still, the law will not accept this. You got no chance with the law. You could be broken and hurt, and if there was no ratified covenant of faith, the law is not going to help you. You could feel really bad about it, too. But the problem is tomorrow you're going to violate the law again, and he won't accept it. See, the law is necessary, but it's not sufficient. And we hear Burroughs giving us a good understanding of this. So what does Paul say? He gives us this understanding of may it never be. We've heard this already today. May ganeto, may it never be, that somehow, we, that somehow the law and faith are contrary to one another. To give you a better understanding of what this Greek phrase means, here's my best way to illustrate it for you. I have a 14-year-old daughter. She is in eighth grade. I want you to imagine if one of her little eighth grade boy companions in her class came up to me and said, I'd like to date your daughter and take her to a movie this afternoon. And I would say, may Ganetto, absolutely not. There's no chance in the world that you're going to be able to do that. And he may not even live through the rest of the conversation if he asked me. That's the impact that we have with may Ganetto. Of course you can't do that. She's my precious little girl. Of course she can't take her to a movie. This is the strongest Greek negative that Paul could have possibly used. And he does this every time. Now listen carefully. Every time anyone is tempted to say, "Mm, the law and faith aren't together. They don't go together. That that was kind of a wasted space in God's word. We no longer need that. Back to the idea of unhitching from the Old Testament. That is not what we do. Here's how Paul uses this in other places that we've seen earlier. Galatians 2.17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Meganetto. Of course not. Those two things are not opposed to one another. Christ doesn't make us sin. The law doesn't make us sin. It exposes it. It amplifies it. But it doesn't make us do that. Back to Romans 7 where we heard earlier. So verse 13, let's come up in the middle of this, or verse 12. So the law is holy, the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Meganetto, by no means it didn't do that. I'm on it now. Of course it didn't do that. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. That's what we see. And then Romans 6, 1 through 4, going back to this one. What shall we then say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Meganetto, of course not. May it never be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? See, they aren't opposed to one another. They help each other. They go together. Without the law, we wouldn't know that we need a Savior. Without the law, we wouldn't understand our need for redemption. Without the God that ratified faith, we wouldn't have any chance to get through the covenant of law. We would have no chance of it. There would be no option for us. That's what it means. That's what we're talking about. So, it says imprisoned. This particular Greek word, and this is back to Romans or Galatians 3.22, imprisoned, that this somehow imprisons us, this particular word, it means enclosed on all sides. This is like, I can't get out. This should give you the idea of claustrophobia. You're imprisoned in there and there's no movement. You can't get out. That's what That's what sin does to us. We know that we're slaves to sin. We're trapped by it. But the law shows us as we look at God's word and we see the ways in which we fall short, the walls begin to close in. That's what begins to happen for that non-believer who's struggling and resisting and not listening to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They feel trapped. You may remember that before you were saved. You might remember that feeling that there is no way out. Well, that's exactly what Paul's trying to get across to you, that he wants you to think that way, that it's a prison. We know that the law does that for us. It helps us to understand there's a way out. Now, we know that whatever law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that's every unredeemed sinner, so that every mouth may be stopped. We have no excuse. We have no option. The whole world may be held accountable to it. The whole world is held accountable to it. So this is those who know God's word, those who have had the moral law written in their heart, as we saw in Romans 2. 
We know it. We have no excuse. Romans 1 tells us that as we look at the beauty of creation, we can have no excuse because we know of God's incredible work there. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We clearly see that it is pressing in on us. We know that we need a Savior. We have that same feeling. What does this prison concept look like as we go through Scripture? Look at the Old Testament. God, Paul, once again, we see the, the psalmist saying this, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. The more we see Scripture, the more we realize this. Solomon and Ecclesiastes, surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. There's none of us. We all fall short. 1 Kings 8, 46, there is no one who does not sin. And you are angry with them and give them to the, to the enemy so that they are carried away, captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. Now we can look at that and understand the enemy that we think of today is not some sort of foreign land, some sort of foreign king that's going to take us into captivity, but sin itself, the enemy, the fallen angel, Satan himself, who wants to pull us away from the truth. That's what we see. It's a prison. Romans eleven thirty through 31, speaking of the, the partial hardening of the Jewish people, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, speaking to us about the Jewish people who resisted this, So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all, trapped us all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Gives us the opportunity when we see our sin to cry out to the deliverer, to see that ray of light in that closed room. And see, that's Christ. That's the intermediary. That's the one who ratified it. God allows us to, to go through this, to live this life of sin, but he uses it for his glory. What a beautiful thing. And then let's finish this off with the tutor. This points us directly to Christ. Because we, we look at a passage like Galatians 3, 22, 23 through 25, we'll look at 23 and 24 here, and we think, what is this guardian? Who is this? What? In your translations, it may say tutor. What could this mean? Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian, tutor, it may say for you, until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. Well, here's what this word means. This particular Greek word is kind of peculiar too, because it's not something we're associating or kind of familiar with in our world today. It's not something we really see. This pi de gogus, which is kind of a funny Greek word, but that's what it sounds like, It was a child discipliner. That's what they called it, this tutor. And it was literally someone who would go side by side with the child and through discipline sometimes, through pain, through through difficulty, this custodian would guide them in the right path, get them onto the right path, show them their errors, and then help them find the way. Here's how MacArthur says this. The guardian or the tutor, the Greek word denotes a slave whose duty it was to take care of a child until adulthood. The guardian escorted the children to and from school, watched over their behavior at home. Guardians were often strict disciplinarians, causing those under their care to yearn for the day when they would be free from the guardian's custody. The law was our tutor, that disciplinarian, which by showing us our sins was escorting us to Christ, longing for that light, longing for the way out longing to get out of the yoke, the slavery of our sin, and the law that showed us our sin. That's what we see. And in verse 25, know that faith has come, we're no longer under that guardian. What we just heard there, this hope, this blessed hope that there's a better way, that there's some way to take this guilt that we should have, this conviction of sin that we definitively have, the weight of it What's the answer? Now that Christ has come, we're not under the discipline or the tutor anymore. We're not. We have a better way. Here's what Jesus says about that better way. And I just, when you, when you think of it in the light of what we've studied, listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 11. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. You put your faith in me, and the weight, the prison, the focus on your sin, which definitively you needed to have, I can take that away. 
That 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, but you were washed. You're cleaned. You're different. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus says similar things here. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. This could be you if you're in Christ. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you give me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. There is relief, and there is joy, and there is comfort in God's word, and knowing that Christ is true. And let's finish here. Titus 2.11. Good news, folks. Good news. This is, this is the answer to our troubles. And as, as we deliver the gospel to people, and we must show them their the error of their ways. We must show them the standard that they're not hitting. We must humbly tell them that we couldn't either, but this is what's happened to the believer. The grace of God has appeared. Amen. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And what for? Well, we're waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are now His disciples. We're not disciples of sin. We're not slaves of sin. We, have a, we don't just have an answer. We have the answer. We don't just have a Savior. We have the Savior. We don't just have one way out of prison. We have the only way out of prison. We don't just have one way to get rid of our guilt. We have the only way to relieve us of our guilt, to, to take away the, the reality of our sin. There's only one. And see, the way we live our lives, according to Paul, to Titus here, is that when we see this, we understand it's our job to live differently. It's our job to show this incredible thing that's happened to us. The fact that, that the guardian's gone, the disciplinarian's gone, that we now have this beautiful life in Christ, that it's not just life eternal, but it's life more abundantly now. That we live upright, godly lives in this present age because we know that grace has appeared. We hold the good news. We have the good news. So yes, one more time. I'm going to tell you to tell people the good news. Tell them the bad news so that they can see how good the good news is. Show them the bad news of their life so that they can see that they have a better way. That there is a better way. That our Savior, the one in whom we, we hold His name, Christian, Christ one, little Christ, gives us a, a better way. The only way. So we have that. I pray that was an encouragement for you today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this difficult passage. Hard things in there, but we know what it means. We know that the sin that entangles all of us chokes us, imprisons us, shows us our error, should make us draw closer to you. It points us to the fact that we need a Savior. But for we who are in Christ here, it also points us to continually working on our lives that we live these upright, godly lives in self-control, knowing that we're changed, we're different. We're no longer part of that system of slavery, that we're no longer imprisoned by our sin. The law is good. Thank you for giving it to us so that we can see our own error. But your grace is even better, superior. Thank you for ratifying that covenant, that we can all, by faith in your Son, be part of the inheritance. We thank you for the joy that comes with that and the, the great hope of the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray for that today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.